I've, uh, I've been in some scary places. Uh, one of those that I've been in on several occasions, and, and let me clarify, it was not, uh, I was not there as a, uh, a prisoner, but uh, on several occasions I've been in the U.S. Medical Center that's better known as the Fed Med in Springfield, Missouri, my hometown. It's the nation's largest, oldest, and best-known federal prison hospital. And uh, there have been many of the uh, prominent celebrity criminals over the year that have been in prison there. John Gotti and the mafia king Joe uh, uh, Bonanno, or however he pronounces it. One I know you've heard of is Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. He was there. Larry Flint was there. Omar Abdurrahman, he's the one known as the Blind Sheik. You've probably seen shows about him. And all of those and many more were prisoners there at the medical center. And walking in and going through the security and uh, hearing those doors close behind you is a, is a scary experience. In addition to that, I've been in several psychiatric hospitals, again, not as a patient, but I've been there trying to minister to people that some of them totally out of touch with reality. But maybe the spookiest place, at least for the moment, that I think I've ever seen was, uh, I'm not even sure what to call it, it was sort of a nursing home kind of a uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. And I'd been invited to, to preach there. I'd been preaching a, a meeting in a little town southeast of Springfield. I believe it was Mountain Grove, Missouri, one of those places there. I'd preached in a lot of those little towns. And uh, someone happened to be in attendance there and heard me preach. And for some reason or the other, they invited me to come out there and speak to those people. And... And naturally, I said yes. I, you know, I always thought every invitation to to preach was of God until I started getting two or three or four requests for revival the same week, and I began to realize, well, God can't be in all of them, you know. So I, I'm going to be in one place at a time. But I said yes, I'd be happy to do that, and I figured, well, it's just another nursing home. Uh, where I can go, you know, meet some nice elderly people and help them. But that's not really what it was in the first place. It was way out in the country. And when I say way out in the country, that's what I mean. It was off of any beaten path. It is out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And uh, when, when I got there, I couldn't believe what I saw. I don't know how to describe it, but if you'll try to picture a two- or three-, four-story um, big old haunted house like you see in the movies. I mean, the shutters are hanging down and all of the trees are growing around there. And you, that, that's exactly the way it looked. And now you try to picture a zombie movie. And, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about people that are just staring off in space and they're slowly just wandering around inside and outside and I looked at these people, and, and I thought, and, and these are the people that I'm going to preach to? 
And the first thought that came to my mind is, man, this is going to be the challenge of a lifetime. Seeing people in that condition and not knowing any of them, my first thought was, what in the world am I going to preach about uh, to, to these people? So I did what I always did. I don't know what to preach. I preached about Jesus. And you just can't go wrong there. And in doing so, in doing so, I took 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2 as my text. That's my text today. The title of the message is A Wonderful Quartet. Over the years, being born and raised in Springfield, uh, for a number of reasons, every famous quartet comes through Springfield. You can, and we've heard them all. You know, the Blackwood Brothers or whoever it might be, they've all been there. And I've listened to all of those famous quartets. And, uh, but none of those quartets can hold a match to the quartet that I'm going to talk about here this morning. And here in verse number 2 of chapter 3, John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The famous British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps some of you have read some of his books, commented on this verse by saying, Nothing more sublime than this has ever been written. One's tendency with a statement like this is always to just stand in wonder and amazement at it. He said, I have never chosen in and of myself to preach upon this text. That, that literally shocked me when I read that. He said, that may be wrong, but this is how it always affects me. And whenever I read that statement, I thought to myself, I know exactly how he felt. Because whenever I preach from this verse, it's with fear and trembling, although it's with rejoicing. And I say fear and trembling because of the fact that I don't want to say anything that would distract from the beauty of it or distort the meaning of it. And I always fear that I'm going to say too much or I'm not going to say enough. And so today I just want to share what leaps out at me when I read this verse. There are four things in this quartet that I want you to notice. Notice that there is a guaranteed relationship. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. You've heard me many times say that it is crucial for a child of God to understand who they are and what they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always keep that in mind if we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we'll never become the person God wants us to be until we understand that who we are and what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice that This verse begins here with a word of assurance regarding our relationship with God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And when we think about this relationship, let me tell you, this isn't what we were by nature. 
over in Ephesians chapter number 2 where Paul describes the unsaved and is a horrible depiction of someone that doesn't know Christ is their Savior. They are defiled. They are deceived. They are, uh, they are living in the very depths of sin and rebels against heaven and each one dead spiritually. It's as bad as you can possibly imagine. And that's the picture that we have. And that's what we are by nature. We are without God and without hope in this world without the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a pretty picture. We're all sinners beyond description. It's impossible for you to understand or for me to explain just how bad off an unsaved person is. So it's, look, our relationship's not what it used to be. Thank God for that. But this statement also tells us that there has been a change that has taken place. Because this is not what we used to be, but now we are the sons of God. Now we are, present tense, now we are. So there had to be a change take place. And Paul deals with that when he speaks about the fact that those who are in Christ are, what, a new creature. We're not who we used to be. God changes us in, our very, in the very core of our being. Our heart is changed and our entire life begins to change as the Holy Spirit does His work of sanctification in our life. So there's a change taking place. But notice he is describing here what we are at the present. Now are we the sons of God. He's not talking about what we're going to be, but what we are right now. I feel so sorry for those folks that are of the opinion that we can't really know whether we're saved or not. Well, the Bible teaches otherwise. In fact, it was John over in chapter 5 said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know you have eternal life. We can know. We should know. We will know. There is absolute certainty in our relationship with Jesus. Amen. There's a lot of things in the world we can't be certain of. I can't be, I can't be certain I'm going to make it home. I can't be certain I'll wake up to see the sunrise in the morning. I can't be certain of a lot of things, but I'm certain of this, and that is the fact that I am right now a child of God, and there is absolutely no doubt about it. If I had, listen, if it is eternal life, and that's what he gives, and I lose it today, it wasn't eternal yesterday. So he gives us eternal life, and the promise is, and we shall never perish. Somebody says, well, you know, I, I just don't think that you have to believe in the eternal security of the believer to be a good Christian. Well, how could you do anything else? I mean, if we're a Christian in the will of God, certainly we're going to trust the Word of God, right? And Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know what I believe. There's a lot of folks out here that know what they believe. That, that's not worth a wooden nickel. That, that, that doesn't matter. In fact, listen, you can even believe all of the right things in that you just give your assent, your mental assent to the historical facts. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was, lived a, a perfect life. He was nailed to the cross. He even come up out of the grave the third day. You can, you can know all of those things. The devil knows all of those things. He knows those. That's, that's fact. 
But it's not until we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we're truly saved. And to say that I don't believe in the security of the believer is to call God a liar, but it does something else. It tells me that I'm depending upon me to keep my salvation. If it depends on you to get it or to keep it, you ain't got it. It depends upon the grace of God to save us. And so we can say with absolute certainty that we have a guaranteed relationship with, any, with God that's better than anything else our mind can imagine. And I like the story of the old song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. It was, uh, it was the words of an Indian chief described, you know, as he's speaking, I believe as a politician and talking about, you know, dividing up the land among the Indians. And this Indian happened to be a believer. And he said, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Boy, listen, that's the the best thing in this world that we can possess, to know that we have a guaranteed relationship with Jesus Christ Himself. Now, we come to the next part. And notice what he says. He shall appear. That's speaking about a grand return. This is our blessed hope, as Paul calls it. The Lord himself promised that he would return. He said, let not your heart be troubled, right? You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And he can't lie. And he said he was coming back again. There on the Mount of Ascension as he ascended. Imagine that picture. All of a sudden as his feet leaves the ground and the disciples are standing there looking up and he keeps going higher and higher. And the angel appeared and said, said, this same Jesus that you see taken away, that he'll come back in like manner. Thank God for that promise that we have that he shall, shall appear. We can depend upon his promises. There is going to be that grand glorious day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. Not as a little babe in Bethlehem's manger, but he's going to come back to this earth. First of all in the clouds of the air and the saints of God will be raptured out to be with the Son of God. And then... After that, after that, seven years later, he comes back not for us, but with us to this earth. He shall appear. And in that day, he'll rule and reign over all of the earth from the throne of his father David. And he'll rule and reign with, and with a rod of righteousness, the Bible says. And thank God for the first time, righteousness will flow like a river across the land and there'll be peace as it were, and we shall rule and reign with Him. He shall appear. The grand return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. If we're depending upon changing the political landscape, if we're depending upon the economy, if we're depending upon all of the things man can do, I'll tell you, we don't have anything to look forward to. Because it's going to get worse and worse. But Jesus is coming someday. 
and he's going to turn this upside-down world right side up finally. But John's not through. There's another member of this quartet, and he says that we shall be like him. This is the great restoration. The great restoration. Have you ever tried to imagine how it must have been with Adam and Eve before sin entered into the world? I mean, I can't picture that. God Himself comes down and He walks with them through the garden and they're living, as it were, in the very presence of God. Sin has never entered into the world. There's no venom in the snakes, no fury in the beast, no thorns on the roses. Everything is absolutely perfect. You love your husband and you love your wife. And they might be as near perfect as your mind can imagine, but I've got news for you. <laughs> yeah, well, you already know, right? None of us are perfect. We all have our faults and our flaws. That's true of every one of us. But imagine, imagine before sin entered into this world, there in the Garden of Eden, and how wonderful that it must have been. Let me tell you, everything and more that Adam lost, Jesus is going to restore. Everything that was lost in the fall, the Lord said in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. And they did die. That very day they died spiritually because they were disconnected at that moment from God Himself. And not until Jesus came to bring reconciliation can sinful man who is the enemy of God be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were created in the very image of God But the fall of man defaced that image. But when the Lord comes, He's going to restore that. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 and verse number 29 that the ultimate goal is for us to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We're all familiar with Romans 8, 28, right? We all know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord of the called according to His purpose, but why? And why does God even allow us to go through these bad things and, you know, and, and then use the bad things for some good purpose? Why? Because as verse 29 says, he has, He's predestinated. It was God's plan from eternity. God knew all about the fall. He knew what was going to happen. And God's plan was for us to be conformed to the image of God's own dear Son. And in that day, notice it says, we shall be like Him. And boy, that's going to, listen, that's going to take a lot of changes for all of us, right? Because if we're honest, we're nowhere near that today. We just move a little bit at a time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, we are changed by the Spirit from glory to glory. In other words, it's in increments a little bit more every day as we grow spiritually. We ought to be growing more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whenever we finally get to glory, all will be glory. And that change is going to be complete because he says we shall be like him. What more could we want than to be like him? But there's another member to this quartet. Notice there's the glorious revelation where he says, We shall see him. 
as he is. Uh, This has got to be the greatest wow moment of all time. This word for here tells us that this is a transforming vision. He says, for we shall see him. Notice, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. When I was a little boy, I probably weeks old or a month old or something, my, uh, my grandmother, whom I can't even remember, my grandmother uh, encouraged mom to take me and, and come along to a revival meeting. She was a Pentecostal holiness, and they were having this revival meeting, and, and who, whoever, whoever brought the most visitors on this particular night would win this big picture. And I mean, it was huge. It was probably six feet long. Is oh maybe twenty four to thirty inches high. Picturing Jesus, you've seen it out on the hillside, and he's sitting there on the hillside. My my mother just she just loved that picture. Some way or another, after Mom died, we couldn't find that picture, and and we finally got the message from Dad that you know we don't know exactly what happened to it, but there were some things like that. She was afraid that. You know, that us kids was going to fight over who got that picture. I didn't want that picture. I don't want any supposed picture of my Lord in my house. I, 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 you do what you want, but I'm telling you, it, it bothers me. Because there is no way that we can capture His likeness regardless of how hard we try it. All down through the centuries, man has tried to imagine what Christ looks like. They've tried to capture His likeness in different ways. The poet with his words. The songwriter with his music. The sculptor tried to capture His likeness on the clay and the painter on the canvas. But there's none of us who really know exactly what Jesus looks like. But in that day, looking on Him in that day, I think we're going to confess that the half has not been told. Many, many years ago, there was an Italian mother who had a little boy. And this Italian mother was, uh, was so, so admired the gospel of Mark that uh, she named her little boy Mark. And um, the Italian word for Mark is, is uh, Marco. And we know him today as Marco Polo. He went with his uncle on a, and was gone for 25 years. He visited Russia, Afghanistan, China, and all of these different places. And when he came back, he tried to describe to others the, the vast empire of China. Because the people in Europe, they'd never seen anything like that. This was the, during the time that it was ruled by Kublai Khan. 
He goes back to the Europeans and he spends his time telling people about that and everybody accused him of exaggerating. Nobody could believe it because he said, speaking about the great cities there in China, that whenever he come back to Europe and he look at their largest cities and they were just like tiny villages. And if I understand it right, it took the Europeans centuries to catch up with the with China on the production of steel. I mean, China was light years ahead of everybody else on a number of things at at that particular time. So everybody said, there can't be such a place as this. On his deathbed, the people literally urged him to confess any known sin, and especially the sin of exaggerating. They begged him, please, before you die, get your heart right with God and confess your sin. And he said he had none to confess. And then he added these words. He says, I have not told you the half of all I saw, for I knew I would not be believed. I knew it. It was just beyond anything you could possibly believe, and so I haven't even told you the half of it. And let me tell you, folks, that is exactly the way it is when we see Jesus. We're going to, when we see Him, we're, going, we're, we're just not going to hardly believe our eyes. The half has not been told. Let your imagination run as wild as you please and try to imagine the glories of heaven and the sight of the Son of God and being in the presence of God. You try to imagine all of that, but when you get there, you'll realize, I can't even imagine anything like this. And of all things that our heart could desire, at the very top of the list, it would be to see Jesus, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus. And that's why I've said a thousand times that the best is yet to come. Thine eyes shall see the King in His beauty, Isaiah said. And regardless of whatever you've experienced before in your life, you've never experienced anything like this. When we look upon the one who is altogether lovely, we think about his glorious character, or I hope you do. We think about his boundless love and his infinite mercy. We think about his amazing grace and his mighty power, his abundant provisions, all of the precious promises. But then we'll see him face to face for the first time. And then we can say, I've seen it all. When we've seen Jesus, we will have seen it all. That is the very best that I that we could possibly experience. And thinking about that makes me feel like Charles Wesley whenever he wrote on the first anniversary of his conversion, he wrote these words, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. I challenge you to live every day of your life in the light of these tremendous truths that we've talked about. And regardless of your current situation, regardless of how good or how bad it might be, remind yourself that you have absolute assurance of a guaranteed relationship 
and the grand return of our Lord and the great restoration that's going to take place and that glorious revelation of seeing Jesus as He really is for the very first time. Helena, who was the empress of Rome and, and she was the, father, the mother of Constantine the Great, by the way, and she is highly revered even, you know, of course, among the Catholics and also the Lutherans. And, and, uh, but anyway, a woman who professed to know the Lord as her Savior. And uh, when the artist was assigned to paint a picture of her, he was so stunned by his beauty that he said, I'm not even, I'm not even able to draw her face. And finally, he drew the face with a veil upon it. And all of these years down through history, folks, as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been with that veil upon it. In types and shadows all back through the Old Testament. And there's that veil that is between us and Him that we cannot see Him as He really is. But finally, in that glorious day, we're going to see Him as He really is. And these, listen, these are facts. They're not dreams. They're not hopes. They're not maybes. These are facts. A guaranteed relationship, the grand return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the great restoration and the glorious revelation of being with Him and being like Him. You see... All of those things provide us with a purpose in life. They produce a motivation for life. I mean, that'll get us out of a chair and on our feet and get us going, opening our mouth and telling others about the greatness of our Lord. It's a promise of a better day of coming. And it's proof that our labor is not in vain. So in the light of all of that... Why would you refuse to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? Think about that for a minute. Why? What are you pinning your hopes upon? What is the basis for your decision of not receiving Christ today? Is it your personal preference or is it based on tradition? Grandpa was a deacon in a certain church and like the Catholic fellow told me, it's against my religion to change my religion. That's the biggest bunch of nonsense ever. We're more concerned about being right than being traditional. Maybe it's just a gut feeling you have that we Christians don't have it right. Well, give us your plan. Where's your hope? Why would you reject the Lord Jesus Christ when you have this ironclad guarantee from a God who cannot lie? What proof do you have that the Bible is wrong? Let me ask you this question. Are you willing to rethink your position? Because you can't afford to be wrong about this, folks. You can be wrong about a lot of things, and it can cost you your money. It can cause you to lose your health or whatever. But you can't be wrong about this. I'm urging you to look at all of the evidence. And if you do... I think that you'll come to the same conclusion that I did many years ago, and that is that Jesus is Lord, Amen. that He is my Savior. Amen. Let me go back to where I started. There I was in this 
haunted house with these zombies and thinking, what am I going to preach? And so I stood up in front of those people and I read the verse I read to you today. And all of a sudden, when I talked about that guaranteed relationship, that first note of the message, all of a sudden I could begin to see the countenance of some of them begin to change. And whenever the second member of the quartet took stage, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, uh, it was very obvious that now some of them are getting emotional about it. People are, people are crying. And I'll tell you, by the time that I got down to the very last thing, you would have thought I was in a Baptist church that had just been revived or a, or a charismatic. Those people were so thrilled and so excited. It's like evidently they were starving to hear the Word of God and nobody was telling them about the Lord. And I can't help but wonder why these wonderful truths do not affect us today like it did that bunch of, well, what some people would have called a bunch of crazy people. But they had enough sense to know when they heard the truth that that's something to rejoice about. If you're here today and you don't know Christ is your Lord and Savior. I beg you today, don't walk out that door. Don't leave this building. Don't go away without Jesus. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to, you don't have to deplete all your funds in your bank and give all your money away. You don't have to turn somersaults down the aisle. All you have to do is just with simple childlike faith, trust Him and His saving grace and you can leave here with a guaranteed relationship with God Himself. And I hope you'll do that. Maybe you've been saved for many years, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, you've lost sight of just how good you have it, how wonderful it is to be a Christian. And maybe today you just want to get on your knees and pray, Oh dear God, revive my heart. I've become cold and callous and indifferent to these wonderful truths. And God, I need a revival. Send a revival upon my life today. May God help us to let the Spirit of God change us into the image of His dear Son. Father, Bless your word just now. Remove every hindrance. Tear down every barrier that stands between us and you. I pray that you'll conquer our stubborn pride. And Lord, that you'll bring to naught our resistance against you and that the Holy Spirit will so work upon hearts that that lost man or woman, some boy or girl here today, that they will yield themselves to you and trust you as their Lord and Savior. For we ask it in our Savior's precious name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing, those awaiting baptism, if you would please come. Ah! Uh-huh.